HTML is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. everybody welcome back to mcu.html i'm kevo and i'm nico and we're gonna kick things off right with iron man one last week Mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun to take a look back at the movie that started the marvel cinematic universe i think we gone into it expecting stellar performances and a good movie and i think we walked away with an uneven if fun movie and uneven extreme performances yeah. I think Jeff Bridges sticks out like a sore thumb in a movie full of people having a lot of fun. I think the rest of the cast did a really great job luring me in and getting me interested in these characters. I think it definitely mostly holds up, yeah. Iron Man was such a dynamic character that he's already on his second appearance, as we will get to a scene with Iron Man in Incredible Hulk. But before we get to that, I want to double-check, reminding everybody that this is not a spoiler-free podcast, and we will be discussing the film in its entirety. So, be sure you've already watched The Incredible Hulk, or stop this right now. Yeah. Hulk, stop. (laughs) But if there's no more need to Hulk stop, then I think we should jump into the film. Yeah. But before we talk about the Ed Norton Hulk, we need to take a minute and talk about the Eric Bana Hulk. The Eric Bana Hulk film, directed by Ang Lee, who would go on to direct Brokeback Mountain, came out in 2003. This movie spent over a decade in development hell and had dozens of names attached to it. Names like Zach Penn and J.J. Abrams each worked on this film. Zach Penn's draft actually went on to influence The Incredible Hulk, the movie we're here to talk about. The film was doomed from the start. Universal Pictures, it turns out, weren't that interested in making a movie about the Hulk so much as using the Hulk in a movie of their devising, including things like Hulk battling terrorists. There was also a draft uh, where he battles a school of sharks. Yeah, so we're already talking about James Cameron's Spider-Man levels of insanity. Down the line, they even talked about turning it into a Jim Carrey or Adam Sandler movie, which I, I wouldn't like them when they're funny. No, I just, I don't think I would like him when he's funny. No, probably not. The different drafts each introduced different concepts that made it into the final film. The first draft introduced Thunderbolt Ross and the military, while the second draft introduced the love story between Betty and Bruce. Other popular characters like Rick Jones were cut, and the leader at one point had a larger role in an earlier draft. While many of the same characters appeared in both films, none of the actors made the crossover. So, I guess that's enough about the Eric Bana Hulk. There's really not much more to say about it. It made money, but it made a bad impression, and they felt the need to retool the franchise, effectively erasing this film and replacing it with a four-minute montage over the credits. Kevo, I know for you, a big part of this podcast was an opportunity to do the research to understand the the behind-the-scenes that made these movies, so I think you have a little bit of background on The Incredible Hulk for us. Yes, and I must say, uh, something I found very interesting in my research is that it's very clear how much Marvel wanted to reboot Hulk as a concept 
after Ang Lee's Hulk, and yet they went with a scriptwriter who had turned in previous drafts for a Hulk movie, Zach Penn. In fact, uh, two scenes that survived his 1996 draft uh, and ultimately did end up in The Incredible Hulk are Bruce Banner transforming by jumping out of a helicopter and uh, discovering that he is unable to have sex, which I guess were that important to Zach Penn that they survived 12 years later. Those are two really weird scenes to be kind of like territorial about. I can't really figure out that's okay. That's Those don't even come to mind as like standout scenes, but okay, I get it. I'm about it. What else? Yeah, the script wasn't exactly the strongest part of this film, which isn't very surprising when you look at Zach Penn's other credits like X2, Elektra, X-Men The Last Stand, and 1999's Inspector Gadget. What is something that was interesting I found during this research is I had never been aware that Zach Penn is credited with the uh, story for The Avengers. And in fact, I found an article going back as far as 2007 saying that he was working on a script. So it's really funny to see how that ultimately came together to be part of the Joss Whedon film. I was going into this film under the impression that most of the creative team behind it was probably going to be exclusive to this film. I know Favreau did Iron Man and Iron Man 2, and I would assume brought most of the crew along with him. I know that the Captain Americas have had some significant consistency, as have the Guardian films. So I was going into this movie expecting Hulk to be sort of a one-off in a lot of different ways in general. Yeah, apart from Zach Penn influencing the story of Avengers, uh, there isn't really a lot of continuity in the crew of this film with the rest of the franchise, which is disappointing because the director, composer, and cinematographer were probably the stronger part of this film. Uh, Louis Leterrier uh, is known for the first two Transporter films and for Clash of the Titans, uh, which for those of you playing along was scored by Raman Djuali, who scored Iron Man from last week. I couldn't quite figure. I was like, I think he means Transformer. Oh, no, he doesn't. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, no, that's how old that film franchise is. The first one came out in 2002 and the sequel came out in 2005. The only other significant work I saw on this director's resume was uh, the 2013 film Now You See Me, which, funny enough, is scored by Brian Tyler, who will come on to do the score for Thor The Dark World and Iron Man 3. Uh, the composer for this film was Craig Armstrong, known mostly for his collaborations with Baz Luhrmann, such as Romeo and Juliet, Moulin Rouge, and The Great Gatsby, also known for his Oscar-winning work on Ray, and the famous holiday film uh, Love Actually. This is the only Marvel Cinematic Universe film to receive a double-disc release uh, for the music, and I definitely think Craig Armstrong did a really good job with the uh, dramatic tone. Totally, 100%. It was one of the first things I noticed when I popped the Blu-ray and the score on this movie is out of control, high energy, operatic. The score on this movie really does set it apart. I actually think it's one of the better scores of the Marvel Phase 1 films. I do have a soft spot for the Captain America score from Phase 1 and the Avengers theme. I think they are really strong, iconic pieces. Although for me, for Captain America, it's probably a little bit more the star-spangled man with the plan. Mm, by Richard Sherman, I believe. Yeah, it's tr- it just stands out. You know, it's one of the first really strong, wow, Disney things that really, you know, when we get to the transition to the Disney films, starting with Iron Man 2, the point at which Disney was starting to look at how to buy Marvel, 
it shows right away with how Howard Stark basically is a stand-in for Walt Disney. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm too excited. The score got me feeling. Well, that's actually why I even keep bringing up who does the score for these films and uh, that sort of behind-the-scenes information because you mentioned Captain America and the Avengers theme uh, giving you the most feels in terms of the MCU, and that really makes a lot of sense because those are by the same composer and, in fact, the composer who has scored every Avengers film so far, including these final two. So it's one of the reasons that I try to emphasize these elements of filmmaking because of how much they influence the entire film franchise so far. And something I really like about the Marvel Cinematic Universe generation of superhero film is I feel they're more defined by their score than their soundtrack. For a number of years, soundtracks dominated films. I feel like people associate Evanescence with Daredevil, and that makes me feel sorts of weird feels that I don't like. It's nothing against Evanescence. They're a strong band. Congratulations on 15 years, 20 years at this point. But I don't necessarily feel that they are the thing I would associate with Daredevil. It also puts that unfortunate rap rock connotation on it. And the less said about Ben Affleck's Daredevil, the better. So let's get back to things that matter. Kevo, talk to me. I think cinematography is your other category that you're looking at in the behind the scenes material, right? Uh, yeah, the cinematographer on this one was uh, Peter Menzies Jr. I... Yeah, Menzies, that's a last name. Okay. Jeez. Uh, he was the cinematographer on Die Hard with a Vengeance from 1995, uh, Lara Croft Tomb Raider in 2001, and Kangaroo Jack in 2003. So as you can see, this is a very mixed bag. You know, looking at this list, I can't help but notice this guy does a lot of franchises. Die Hard... Lara Croft, Spider-Man, Miss Congeniality, one of the most well-known superhero franchises. Oh, absolutely. It's a lot of, like, slow-motion action, big blockbuster, like, all these films that we are hearing from both Louis Leterrier and... Peter Menzies Jr., it really does paint a picture that is in line with what we saw in the film. And, you know, talking about it, it's not just that these guys have done a number of franchise properties, but it's the Hulk itself is a franchise property in the way I feel like Iron Man isn't. There have been dozens of iterations of the Hulk at this point. There was the TV show, which returned into TV movies. There have been multiple animated series. There was the previous film. Then there was this film. And the Hulk is such a, a well-known name and such a well-known idea, the big green guy in the purple shorts, Iron Man was a blank slate. Kevo, you mentioned that Robert Downey Jr. was looking to create his own Jack Sparrow, was looking to create his own brand for himself, a character that's just so powerful. He's synonymous with them. Yeah. And I think having the blank slate of Iron Man allowed him to do that. Not that Ed Norton didn't do a great job, but Ed Norton was the 80th Bruce David Banner we'd seen. This was the umpteenth interpretation of the Hulk. So much of the iconography that John Favreau had to create and come up with was drawn from the comics and animated series if he used those, but he couldn't draw them from a film source the way this Hulk could. There was a lot of Hulk films to draw from in advance of making this one. Yeah, and I think that's part of why they were able to so easily and so readily reboot after the Eric Bana Hulk film. 
uh, when they first came onto this project, the director, Louis Leterrier, and the screenwriter, Zach Penn, were told, you know, we're, we're sort of distancing ourselves from the previous version. Zach Penn described the difference between Ang Lee's Hulk and Leterrier's Hulk as the difference between alien and aliens, where they share a lot of common themes, but they're still drastically different films themselves. I really see that here. And I think one of the things that supports that best is that four to five minute film montage that plays over the credits that's supposed to be sort of like a comic book previously reminding us about the events of the Hulk, but while at the same time allowing them to change and manipulate things as needed to create a new movie. Well, uh, interestingly enough, and one last creative force behind the film that I want to touch on before we get into discussing the film itself, uh, the source behind that was actually Ed Norton himself. He was specifically not just hired for his acting ability, but to do significant rewrites on the script. And it was actually a interesting point of contention between himself and scriptwriter Zach Penn that Ed Norton didn't get any specific writing credit from the Writers Guild for his work. In fact, I believe they even had to go as far as arbitration, and they had to fight to get some amount of ruling done on this, and ultimately Norton was ruled out, if I'm not mistaken, and it was that it's it's something to do with, um, oh God, it's like the Guild, the Guild goes with story, the story, not, not the dialogue, or some bullshit. It's that the guild tends to favor plot, structure, and pre-existing characters over dialogue. It seems that what Ed Norton influenced a lot was the dialogue in this film, and frankly, if that was where his fingerprints are, I, I, I wouldn't be proud of taking credit for any of that. Who boy, I tell you what. I will say this, though. While there has always been some amount of discussion about the fact that Ed Norton was kind of a giant monster on the set of The Hulk, he has always been very supportive of his friend Mark Ruffalo taking the role— in fact, they've had multiple conversations about it. They are friends. So that's something that I do like, that there is kind of a baton pass. It's sort of like the moment where Lou Ferrigno appears in the film itself. I like Lou Ferrigno showing up. It's, you know, he played the Hulk. He did not play Bruce Banner. He played the Hulk. It's yeah. a different thing, and that's important to note. I've heard people say that Lou Ferrigno was both. He was not. No. Uh, also, the character wasn't Bruce Banner on the TV show. No. He was David Banner. Oh. And... Actually, in the comics, the character's name is Bruce David Banner. So that's kind of a fun little tidbit for you. I don't think we have anything more we can really talk about behind the scenes, although I do think it's important just to remind everybody that this film was not intentionally made in tandem with Iron Man. There's little pieces here and there in the opening. There's some references to Stark Industries, and at the end, there's the tag. But other than these two, maybe one other Easter egg, these were produced by separate film houses with no intention of overlaying until there was significant success that they were looking to combine. And those parts of this film definitely do feel very obviously tagged on not to get ahead of ourselves and talk about the tag scene before the film but i remember sitting through the entire incredible hulk knowing that the origin of this in the mcu is an attempt to rediscover super soldier serum and having it mentioned nowhere in the film anywhere until the tag at the very end with tony stark when he says the words super soldier so it it feels like that was a very obvious attempt to try and and make the Incredible Hulk part of a larger universe after the fact, which I appreciated, but, you know, it, it's the, the cracks are still there a little bit. 
Certainly. And we're going to have a lot of opportunities to discuss just how nebulous that Tony Stark tag is. It kind of is the same same level of nebulous, unclear for the sake of getting away with whatever they need that the Nick Fury tag is. There's just sort of this, oh, look, we're building the Avengers initiative. And it's kind of like a number of the tags do need to be disconnected from their films because the tags work as hype men. They're just there to get the audience excited about the next thing, but the continuity of it, the, the canosity of those moments, that's not the Tony Stark operating as a member of the Avengers initiative in any capacity that we're going to see in Iron Man 2 at all. Especially when we've been told a few times that this film, Iron Man 2, and Thor all take place within the same week. I'm pretty sure that's still canon, even with the new timeline that's been released by uh, Marvel Studios. It is important to note that Marvel Studios loves to bounce around these new timelines as needed. One of the problems with working with a collaborative universe is that a lot of different storytellers each put their own spin on things. While the overall picture is managed by a team, uh, Strong Brain Trust... One of the things that happens is cracks show here and there, and fans like ourselves find those cracks and point to them and say, hey, Eck, Nein, Berliner. Look at it. Look at it. We just point. We point till everybody can't stop pointing. Like, I'm going to just point the shit out of the Infinity Gauntlet holes over and over again. I can't wait to get to Thor. That's what we're here for. Anyway, before we get to the Infinity Gauntlet, let's talk about the first big bruiser that the Marvel Universe had to contend with. Kevo, if there's no further objections, I believe we should begin actually talking about the Incredible Hulk. Let's do it to it. So we just talked a whole lot about how this movie was an attempt to distance itself from the Ang Lee film that came a few years earlier. Though on that topic, for just one moment, I do want to say that the Ang Lee film was not some sort of flop. The Ang Lee movie made money on its budget, so it didn't even just make an impressive amount of money. It made an impressive amount of money over its budget. It's that it was a creative failure and critically a failure and made no connection with audiences. They turned out to see it, but ultimately had no interest in really seeing it. Mm. So, in an effort to get away from that one, this one picks up exactly where that one left off, I think is what you said, Kevo. Yeah, Bruce Banner uh, hiding out in South America is where Ang Lee's Hulk leaves off and where Leterrier's The Incredible Hulk picks back up. And I actually felt the South America material was some of the strongest in the film. It gave me... I don't know, renewed hope that maybe this movie was better than I remembered. Sometimes movies are better than you remember, or the way cinema changes, a movie suddenly seems stronger in retrospect because of its technique being more accepted or anything. I don't know, but I was really positive on this movie. We got it going. I felt strong. I was like, yeah, I'm digging all the different uh, ways they adjusted the first movie into this one. I've also seen the Banner movie. I saw it once or twice. It's just boring. And I was super into Norton being so into it from the start. It really, really was the kind of dedication I needed to see to play the Hulk. Yeah, and I was definitely also very engaged from the beginning. Something that I found throughout this film as it continued to play on is that I was most engaged on the scenes that had the least amount of dialogue. A lot of the first half hour of this film barely has a single word spoken uh, in English. And yet it still conveys so much through story, uh, visually, uh, through action, and it, it, it's really mostly the English dialogue that slowed down this, this film for me personally. 
And I do think a lot of that is on Ed Norton's performance. He gives an incredibly engaging performance as Bruce Banner, whether it's when he's speaking Portuguese, trying to help out in the factory, or he's working on controlling the beast inside of him. He expresses so much with his eyes and his face. He's He's a famous actor who gives incredible performances, and that definitely shines through here, especially because throughout the first third of the movie or so, he has no one of great consistency to play off of. Occasionally, the military people come in, but that's not where his story is centered until the stories intersect. Yeah, it's a good 43 minutes into the film before he's reunited with Betty and given a supporting character that he can physically play off of. For the rest of the film, they stay united. And speaking of characters that take quite a while to show up, it's literally 26-something minutes before we get any Hulk. However, before that, we get a lot of information about the Hulk and a lot of other people reacting to the Hulk. A good portion of any Hulk story is people reacting to the monster, to the monster. Mm. We see all different kinds of fear and hunger reactions. We see General Thunderbolt desperate to destroy the Hulk, but also use it for his own personal gain. We see Bruce desperate to get rid of the Hulk and destroy it. While we don't know anything about Mr. Blue early on, he's clearly fascinated by the Hulk and can't wait to get his hands on his test subject that he's only gotten to speak with from afar. Betty, of course, accepts the Hulk and just wants to deal with it so that she can be with Bruce and it's whatever Bruce wants because Betty is literally the only rational sane person in this entire fucking film. Blonsky is obsessed with the Hulk and just wants to be it. There's so much going on and I think one of the best reactions to the Hulk comes from the drop of blood sequence. When when Banner loses some blood in the factory and it falls onto the bottles It's that fascinating story of gamma poisoning. It kind of reminds me of a story in the Marvel Universe. And while I'm sure there's a number of Hulk stories that involve Hulk's blood doing things to other people, everybody should check out She-Hulk. She-Hulk had the whole breaking the fourth wall, funny man, crazy awesome bit, uh, metacomic sort of vibe that everybody loves from Deadpool. But She-Hulk had it way earlier. She-Hulk is Hulk's cousin. She gained her powers from a blood transfusion, and that's how she became She-Hulk. I really enjoyed seeing Stan Lee in this role. It was a cute cameo on his part. Stanio. Nope, that's what they are forever now. They are now forever Stanios on our show. It's not quite as good as last week's where he was, I believe, Iron Man 1 is Hugh Hefner. No, it's a joke that he's Hugh Hefner. He actually is Hugh Hefner and I believe, Iron Man and Iron Man 2. I think the first one, it's a joke. I think Iron Man 2, it actually is supposed to be Hugh Hefner. In the end, he's a watcher, so it doesn't matter. In the end, it doesn't matter. However, the story I was referencing before I got so sidetracked with your amazing new term of Stanio is there's a story in the Marvel Universe that involves Reed Richards having convinced scrolls to mimic cows and then convincing them they really are cows and then those cows getting slaughtered and turned into beef and people eating scroll meat and gaining scroll powers and they assemble a team of mercenaries known as the Skull Kill Crew and I love it. Why? Because the Scroll Kill crew is one of the coolest things ever, and we should just be grateful it exists. Okay, fair enough. Um, I I loved the urgency of the bottle scene. I thought it was very well acted, but the actual content of the scene, it it I find it very hard to believe that he would be able to track that drop of blood all the way down to the bottom of the factory. And he manages to see that one spot, but didn't look around and see the giant red smear on the bottle, which 
ew, then got stuff put in it, and that stuff was very clearly a different color than any of the other soda bottles. Like, that 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 took me right out of it, because it did still feel, after all that dramatic production, for him to have missed such an obvious spillage really took me out of it a little bit. I agree, because I think his performance in that moment, that way he leaps, the fear in his eyes, conveys everything I need, that he really is terrified of the beast living inside him, but then he just lets that glob go on that bottle. But then it's just a really small, stupid mistake that he missed way too easily. And I just don't accept the United States government being like, up, oh, proof that it's the Hulk, because it's gamma poisoning, so it's proof it's the Hulk. Not that there's so many people running around with gamma poisoning, but if this is a full year after the Iron Man incident, if this is after that Iron Monger incident, it just doesn't seem possible that there has been no other major supernatural or otherworldly tech threat at this point. I also I don't know, because it all ties into the fact that the Avengers are like, this isn't our first rodeo, and we see how many things have been referenced. Captain Marvel will set a lot of things clearer for me. Oh, for sure. And I mean retroactively, but that's all you can really do. Absolutely. One of the things that you convinced me to do this podcast with was to treat this as 22 episodes of a television season. Treat this as 22 episodes coming together to form a big picture. I'm willing to do it, especially the more I thought about it. The Iron Man cast popping up in Homecoming when we get there was just, it made us so happy when we watched Homecoming. It felt like a homecoming. It felt like a new generation of heroes was being born and we had already seen, I don't know, getting ahead of myself. Anyway, back to this movie. The South America stuff comes to a head when General Thunderbolt Ross, along with his newest recruit, Emil Blonsky, head in to go after the Hulk in South America, the site of the factory where they believe they have traced the bottle back to. Of course, Bruce has been dealing with a few other storylines going on as well. He has a local bully kind of beating him up. He looks like a Ferengi from Star Trek. It is. It's an interesting choice because I've always appreciated it when the super strong, uh, uber powerful character has to hide their strength and their power to be able to fit in. And somebody keeps testing it. It's one of the things that I love about Spider-Man when when they do it right and Spider-Man gets picked on at school and he knows that he could punch Flash Thompson so goddamn hard that his spine would shatter into pieces and reassemble itself. But he can't. He literally can't because with great power comes great responsibility. For Hulk, it's a little bit more like that first punch means he's never going to stop punching you to death. And he just doesn't want to do that today because he really likes these pants. And if he has to Hulk out of these pants, number one, you're going to be horrified and totally traumatized for the rest of your life. And number two, your life is about to be very short and he's going to have to get new pants. He doesn't want that. No, nobody wants that. So while we're finishing up talking about the South America arc, I don't think there's any better time to start talking about Thunderbolt Ross and Emil Blonsky. Thunderbolt Ross is... Such a dick. He's just so fucking annoying. And it's really weird to see this character, who is basically the only one who survives the Incredible Hulk. Part of why it's difficult to process the Incredible Hulk as a film as part of the MCU is because there is such a huge disconnect. It's uh, it's plot. It doesn't really affect the main narrative. None of the actors transition except for Thunderbolt Ross, who we will see again in the Captain America and Avengers films. And he sucks. He sucks so bad. That's what gets me. He's just 
he's just like one of those old school, let's take him out and compare him, boys, then we'll see who the man is. Kind of like over-the-top military pastiche. I, it's hard to imagine him without his boot up on somebody's back and a cigar in his mouth. I think the only reason I'm not having as severe a reaction to... Ross is because we just saw Stain, and I feel Stain is such a more dramatic caricature of hyper-masculinity, but Ross is definitely, uh, he's definitely an asshole. Yeah, and I can't help but notice that he's such an asshole that he's kind of that J. Jonah Jameson willing to turn a blind eye to the right thing to get at the guy kind of stereotype he can see that blonsky is the wrong move but it is anything anything to get his hands on the hulk not because he wants to destroy the hulk but the hulk's a fucking weapon and it's his weapon and this little white man ran away with his weapon and then in the end the only reason that he backs the hulk is because he knows that the hulk will take down the worst threat of blonsky and as soon as that's over oh he's back to hating superheroes again even though he's the person who encouraged blonsky to put all this crap in his body now all of a sudden it's not power people suck again like come on dude you know mrs kravitz is always trying to see samantha use magic she's convinced of it and every time she gets close enough she thinks she's got it she thinks you know what her brain would fucking explode if she actually got her hands on samantha stevens using magic and that's kind of what i think about thunderbolt ross every time thunderbolt is sitting in his little tank going i'm gonna get the green guy this time and then he gets there and he's like by God, he's enormous. And he's just shaken to his core. And that's such that's such a statement on these characters. Blonsky keeps being like, oh, I'm... Blonsky almost looks like sexually excited at the prospect of the Hulk. And there really is some sort of, like, a hunger to be him. It, it's It's literally... It's penis envy. There's no other way to describe Blonsky. Yeah. It is actual penis envy to the point where later on in the film, he says to Hulk, you don't deserve this power after he's amassed what should be, in his opinion, the same amount of, if not greater, power. So one of the things that sets this movie apart is Stain might have been ridiculous and Stain might have been over the top and the Ten Rings might have been flat. But the threat they represented wasn't so eye-rollingly annoying. It just seems like the military never stops coming. In fact, one of the things we see is after this battle, Blonsky says he's willing to do anything to have all of the power and knowledge he has now, but a 10-year younger body and able to keep up with someone like the Hulk. And that's sort of the impetus for the, the major plot arc of this film. It's not just about chasing the Hulk, but it's about chasing the Hulk on, an, on a kind of an analogous level as well, where Blonsky is trying to chase after to become the Hulk. We see him go through his first procedure to become more powerful, which seems horrifying and terrible and not fun, but he's willing to do it because... He's just that level of flat, power-hungry, uninteresting penis envy character. Yeah. And there's not really much left to say about those two characters. And in fact, there's not really much left in this film until we finally see Bruce Banner reunited with Betty Ross once again, which is a good 10 minutes after the first conflict with the Hulk. And that's because Betty is an unfortunate relic of the 60s. And I don't use relic offensively to her. I use it in terms of the way female characters were treated in the 1960s. Many people forget Karen Page, until the success of the Netflix show at least, many people forgot Karen Page because she was eclipsed by Elektra, a character who was created with a much more dynamic, 
uh, in charge personality. Betty just sort of is there. She's not the dynamic of Electra. She's not the fascinating of Jean Grey the Phoenix. She's not Storm. She's not Wonder Woman. She's the girlfriend, and that's just not fair to this character. Betty has a few great moments, very heroic moments, but it's not... Those aren't things that I would generally pin to her character. It's more like they are moments that she did. I don't know. No, I completely agree with you. I I, I was like moments where she shined because I actually think that Betty, of all of these characters, maybe except for Bruce, who tends to make the right decision and be a good person, Betty is one of the only good people in this entire film. She's one of the only logical people. She behaves from a place of needing the truth and needing answers, and she doesn't put her ego in front of anything. She's willing to do whatever Bruce thinks is right to keep the Hulk at bay, to keep the world safe. She feels emotions, but I would never at any point call her emotional in this film. 100%. The men in this film are the over-emotional ones. The men in this film behave insanely. Yeah. And speaking of behaving insanely, I can't help but think, okay, look, I understand his personal journey was the journey it was, but what was Bruce thinking going anywhere near Betty at this point? What was his logic here? Did he not think that Betty's dad would be keeping tabs on Betty? Not to mention, there's that awkward... Okay, so there's this moment, once he's already in America near Betty, where he goes to this old Italian restaurant where he and Betty used to go, and he sees this guy, and they have this moment and this heart-to-heart. Papa Italian chef, whatever his name is. Yeah, and Papa Marinara is like, I I think, you know, you two were meant to be, she's happy, she's with somebody, and, you know, Ed Norton's like, oh, I just, I don't want to mess that up for her. And... He keeps hanging around and he gets a job and helping there. And he runs into Betty and Betty's just like, oh, right. The job is a is a fake so that he can break into where Betty works, I believe. Well, to get to get the data that he needs. But yeah. So it's just like he's doing a really bad job staying away from her. I don't know what he's trying to accomplish, but it's definitely dumb. And I just don't root for him sometimes. And then it turns out that if he hadn't gotten in touch with her in the first place, he never would have gotten the data that he needed. So I, I, I don't know. It's one of those films that was written in a very specific way that's the only way you can really... Okay, it's this exact, except, it's this exact set of extreme circumstances that makes this character's actions still logical or in character. It just takes so much for this to work sometimes. But it, it works fine here. And then once Betty and Bruce are together, it really is a completely different film. All of the trappings of the South American military's film are completely gone, which is something that is similar to Iron Man, but Iron Man did manage to bring back the military influence later on with the return to Gomera. I don't know that I feel like the South American vibe ever really comes back. In fact, we start to make weird decisions in this film. Like, Bruce is just constantly out in broad daylight and then surprised when he's caught or possibly seen. He's not well disguised. He's not wearing a beard. He hasn't dyed his hair. He's not in an unusual outfit or a plain outfit, so he blends. He just constantly looks like Bruce Banner. And I don't think that's a very good job hiding. But that does bring us into the college campus action sequence, which I think is kind of like the, like the, the linchpin for the whole movie. It's the point at which... Everything that's going to happen becomes very, very clear. 
We see Blonsky deployed the first time with his new abilities, kind of showing off, being really impressive. We see Bruce desperate to get away so he doesn't have to turn into the Hulk. We see Betty use her logic and reason to compel her father to, through emotion, stop being a warlord because that's the thing she's using reason she's like dad you're trying to kill someone and he's overwhelmed by emotion and listens to his daughter i don't know these characters are by this point in the movie i was like oh right that's why this is the bad one right now i remember yeah i feel like you know i'm not really commenting a lot on the specific plot details of this film but as i've said you know the 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 closer i analyze this film the major story elements can usually be boiled down to like a sentence a piece this isn't really a movie that you are watching for its well-developed and well-written story it's a lot of action sequences with heart in them absolutely uh these actors do a really excellent job of portraying their characters and making me care about them but when you really zoom in on the story and the the in the exchanges of dialogue it's almost painful at times it's sluggish it's sloppy it's ugly dialogue there's just times that the words they chose are so wooden and clunky i don't know if perhaps maybe the script that was there in the first place was even worse and ed norton made improvements but there really are times I feel like I'm listening to a bunch of people recite poorly translated video game dialogue, if that makes any sense. It doesn't feel like the way people would naturally speak. And in a movie where you're already dealing with the supernatural and the and the extreme that this movie goes to, the Hulk is literally meant to be so big, he is deformed. I would really appreciate the anchor, the weight, the gravity of more realistic dialogue, of more realistic exchanges, because what we're in for for the rest of this movie is just sort of like an increasing speed kind of almost gambit of non-stoppery where they're trying to bring together all of the different threads of this film. Blonsky's treatments are already making him stronger and better. We see Thunderbolt more resolved to destroy the Hulk than ever. Hulk with the help of, well, more appropriately, Bruce, with the help of Betty, is on a chase to get his hands on a cure, so he finally connects with Mr. Blue, the internet pen pal he'd been discussing his situation with earlier in the film. And hold on, actually, that brings me to something that I don't know how I didn't bring up. I have such a problem with one thing in particular in the beginning of the film, while many things bothered me. In the early part of the film, he takes a vial of his blood and throws it in this big, loose package to send to Mr. Blue. And my irritation, my my aggravation with that is he was so hardcore, protective of his blood spill in the factory. And here he's just throwing his blood in a vial and sending it in the U.S. mail. Although in this case, I guess it's the South American mail, but to the U.S. mail. And trust me, I have gotten books shattered from the United States Post Office. I didn't know a book could shatter, but I am positive they could do something to a vial of blood that would definitely leave more than just Stan Lee hulked out. So that was something I just didn't want to forget to mention from earlier. But yeah, at this point, the movie's beginning to come together a little too fast for me. Everything's kind of happening. Blonsky's all of a sudden better. And I just said a lot of stuff, and I'm just kind of rambling and raving now. Kevo, what do you think? What uh, For you, at this point in the film... The, the story, the dialogue, the character, the choices, where's your head at? 
Uh, I think you hit a really excellent point by bringing up the more natural dialogue uh, that we saw in Iron Man and then we'll be seeing next week in Iron Man 2. I think Iron Man really sets the tone for how the rest of the MCU is going to sound. And this film being produced before that was in mine shines through a lot. There's a lot of strange attempts at natural dialogue, uh, like the scene where Bruce Banner... Excuse me, like the scene where Betty is offering to pawn her necklace for money and Bruce says, but that's the only thing you have left of her. It's quite obvious to a viewer that they're referring to Betty's mother, but they're trying not to say your mother because that usually feels so unnatural in film. But the fact that they're going out of their way not to say that, to not sound unnatural, ends up making it sound so much more unnatural that it's the the whole thing is just deeply uncomfortable um i had mentioned in the last episode how i was surprised that no one referred to tony stark when he's on the bottom of the plane looking like some kind of iron man well here we definitely got a line of it was like this huge hulk and that sort of is a perfect example of how this film is still a lot of the tackier dialogue that you can recognize in the less well-produced superhero films i think you're establishing a core element of the Hulk as a property from this discussion as well. If you take a look at the Marvel branding right now, so many of the images for so many of the characters are things like Cap's shield is his branding and Captain Marvel's chest emblem for Nova. It's his Nova symbol for Spider-Man. It's the webbing. And for Hulk's, it's a giant fist because Hulk has all of the delicacy of a giant fist punching you in the face to tell you this is the Hulk. And it's here. And that is what most of the dialogue in this film feels like. You know, I remember six, seven years ago, a lot of people complaining that it looked like we were never going to get another Hulk film. And a lot of people whining and saying how it's all they wanted. The Hulk needs more attention. But I don't know what film they watched necessarily that they wanted a continuation of this specific branch of the MCU. I love that we've seen more Hulk in other films. But this is definitely one of the weaker standalone films of the franchise. And it's the second one. It's not even just that I don't think this movie is great, because I don't. It's even more so that I compel people to tell me what it is about the Hulk that they want to see another film. And I often hear, oh, Planet Hulk. And I kind of nod, but I say to people, what was it about the Infinity War that you wanted to see? Most people remember the Infinity War primarily from video game properties, but if you were to ask them to actually explain the plot, they really would not be able to. Even then, they probably couldn't tell you much about Thanos other than he's a big bad guy. Thanos and Darkseid in the cultural vernacular are sort of one big mountainous bad guy, and nobody can really tell them apart if they're not familiar with the comics, although I do imagine that is significantly different now in the wake of Infinity War being one of the most successful films in history. So I'm left with people want to see more Hulk movies because of the Hulk's inherent potential. The Hulk should be cool. The Hulk could be cool. One of the things, though, that needs to be remembered is the precarious nature of this rights packaging situation that's going on. The Hulk still technically belongs to Universal Pictures the way Spider-Man still technically belongs to Sony Pictures. Marvel is able to use Hulk with permission from Universal Pictures. I don't know all the details of the inner workings of this contract because I'm not an entertainment lawyer, but I believe what I have heard is something along the lines of if it's a Hulk movie, 
Universal is in charge, but if it's just a movie that includes Hulk, Marvel is in charge. So Marvel can't produce a Planet Hulk film, but they sure can stick Hulk in a Planet Hulk-like story starring Thor and call it Ragnarok, because Planet Hulk was not the first gladiator-type super-strong mega-battle story we'd ever seen at Marvel. So there isn't even some sort of argument of, oh, they ripped themselves off with Planet Hulk. Well, they ripped themselves off to do Planet Hulk in the first place. For those of you looking for a Planet Hulk film, there is an animated film that Marvel did about a decade back in place of Silver Surfer from the original story. He's replaced with Beta Ray Bill, which is kind of an interesting thing considering they replaced Silver Surfer from the original story with Beta Ray Bill, and then in the second adaptation they replaced Hulk himself with Thor, Beta Ray Bill being a replacement for Thor. The whole thing kind of comes full circle. I think the only thing that we had that we wanted to discuss before we push into the final act of this film was, uh, you wanted to talk a little bit more about the freaky sex stuff. The oppressive heteronormativity, yeah. Something I noticed in watching Iron Man and Hulk that I'm going to keep my eyes out for going forward is, both of these films have, while very tastefully executed, either sex or not-quite-sex scenes, and I can't really think of other Marvel Cinematic Universe films that have that. I can't imagine one being in Thor, Cap, Avengers. I can't come up with one in Iron Man 3. I can't come up with one in Thor 2. Other than perhaps Star-Lord being a space slut, I have trouble coming up with examples of this clearly defined sexual sexuality in the Marvel Universe. And it's just so interesting that it's the two before there was a Marvel Universe. Yeah, the thing is, there is definitely a ton of visible heterosexuality all over every single inch of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it's only these first two films that are so sexually aggressive and explicit and charged. Everything after this, while still clearly having tons of heterosexuality all over the place, you don't actually see it presented so explicitly. Yeah, you know, I can't stop thinking about how Tony cackles when he and his reporter Trist fall out of bed. He kind of goes like, ha ha! And like, it's just, I don't know, it's nothing that fits the Marvel Cinematic Universe at any other point. Well, that was definitely an attempt to capture James Bond energy that Jon Favreau was going for, uh, which is exemplified in the score that's even playing over that scene that is sort of a twangy electric guitar version of the Iron Man score. They're trying to make him seem like, you know, a, 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 a Lothario. But Bruce Banner isn't really a character like that, and yet there are specific examples in this film. You know, when we saw the opening montage that showed how Bruce Banner was irradiated, there's this moment where he winks at Betty, and I was like, that's so bizarrely suave for Bruce Banner. And not only did it strike me there, they reused that specific clip again during one of Bruce Banner's major uh, flashback sequences, when he's having his uh, PTS flashbacks, they show him winking at Betty, and I was like, not only was that out of character for him, I feel, but you showed it twice. That's such a specific choice to make Bruce Banner seems so much more confident and sexual than he is portrayed throughout most of the film. I even think there's a hint of that in the South American stuff with the young woman at the factory. It kind of feels that there could be an implicit love thing there. And I don't know if it's just I'm programmed to think that every male heterosexual leading hero is going to date every woman that he meets in the course of his film. In an amount of grossness that I have trouble calculating, I can only think of two female characters in this entire film. And one of them, 
Bruce has an explicit love affair with, and the other he has charged moments with. It's the same situation with Iron Man, where I can only think of two female characters. And both of them had romantic moments with Tony. So it really is a problem with these early Marvel films where everybody's heterosexuality is a defining element of of the storytelling. And, you know, I almost wanted to correct you uh, because I could immediately think of one of the first speaking characters in all of the MCU is an unnamed female soldier. And that's a great thing. One of the first things she does in dialogue is get flirted with by Tony Stark. That's immediately reducing the power of creating a character like that. I agree. I think the problem is they weren't sure what they wanted the movie to be, so in an effort to be a million things, they defaulted to a number of tropes. I don't really think there is room for the level of sexuality that they try to infuse into this movie for only two women in the entire film, but hey, until they start giving us gay dudes, that's all it's going to be, two women as sexual props in these films. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so I don't really think there's much left to do except push into the third act of this film with Betty and Bruce journeying to New York City to try and find the cure and the final showdown with the abomination. It's really interesting to note that The Incredible Hulk is the only film from the first phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe to contain scenes set in modern-day New York City before we finally see it as the showdown and the Battle of New York in The Avengers. You have some flashbacks in Captain America, well, you know, Captain America being a flashback to the 1940s. You have some scenes set in New York City and Brooklyn back then. But uh, apart from The Avengers, no Avenger film beforehand featured any scenes in New York City apart from this one. So it was a very interesting choice. And I think one of the things that that plays into is, again, these are before there was a plan. This is before there was a grand vision for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. These are two separate films made in a vacuum. So the overlap is permissible because they weren't thinking it out the way they would later think out putting Thor 2 in London. The way they would later think out making sure that all of the events of Black Panther, instead of inexplicably happening in New York, they made sure that Black Panther happened everywhere because that's who T'Challa is and that fits his story. This is generic superhero movies at two separate companies. One of them just happened to turn out great. And that's why we sort of end up with a mostly generic ending. Uh, we see Bruce uh, nearly get cured by Stearns. I thought it was a really great moment when Betty jumps on top of Bruce. I actually think that's one of my top Marvel Cinematic Universe moments, honestly. That was such a brave thing for her to do. It's uh, such a classic Marvel heroine move. And I really liked that, but... I found fewer and fewer moments that I loved the same way as we got further and further in the climactic battle. It was fun, but it wasn't really emotionally engaging. After a while, it really did devolve into punchy punch. I can't even imagine how many days people had to be on set to film the end of this movie. So much of it is CGI and just reaction shots from people on the chopper. And the thing that I loved the most about the film, the direction of the cinematography, even that starts to fall apart. There was one scene where we see this 
unbelievably enormous orange moon hanging over New York City over a pitch black sky. And then we follow the helicopter and we see that the sun is still setting on the other end of the sky. It was actually one of like... When I first started at Kid Riot, I was still coming into my own as a colorist and learning how to do different color splashes and uh, make sk- making sky effects look good. And there was this page that I was very defensive of. Uh, the gradient was just too much. All the colors uh, just it wasn't working, and I really needed to step outside myself and do what was better for the comic than stay dedicated to what I thought looked good. And the way that the sky looked at this scene, it really made me feel like who didn't say something to the person who was doing this CG and be like, no, it's too busy. What are you, what, what are you doing here? This is way too many things going on all at once. But that's the ending of this movie, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. The abomination. Well, so let's rewind a little bit. The leader tries to help the Hulk. Well, oh, ha ha ha. See, I can't stop getting ahead of myself because too much stuff is happening. As the military complex is coming toward... Banner, with the help of Betty, he's made it to Mr. Blue, who is revealed to be a scientist named Dr. Stearns. Dr. Stearns is helping Bruce cure the Hulk, and just as he is doing so, an out-of-control, somewhat mutated Blonsky shows up and begins beating on Banner. If you took him away from me, if you got rid of him, uh, because at this point, Blonsky is just some sort of like competition monster. He just got his bigger science dick, so now he needs to be able to compare dicks with the Hulk, and if the Hulk has taken away the Hulk dick, I guess he's just not a whole person. And Thunderbolt is like, yeah, now we got it and they're wheeling Bruce out on a stretcher, and Betty's like, no, don't do this! And out of nowhere, Blonsky goes over and starts talking to Stearns and is like, yeah, make me an even more powerful monster. And Stearns is like, yes, I know, I was so fascinated by the Hulk. And it's just this bizarre moment. It's like, it must be from a different draft, because it's, it's so completely out of character. Well, I know that Stearns does go on to become the leader, a Hulk villain who has a mind equal to the Hulk's strength. At this point... I don't feel like that's any anything in the character that's been defined or developed in any way. I don't find it out of character, but I more find it hard to buy the notion that there was this one female soldier who was with Blonsky uh, interrogating Stearns, and Blonsky just very quickly dispatches her, and there's enough time to strap him into this machine and dose him with this 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 thing that turns him into the abomination. Hulk juice. Well, yeah, but I, I I, just find it very hard to believe that... I don't find the character motivation hard to believe. I find the fact that they found the time and weren't interrupted and were able to get it done successfully hard to buy. So as they're making their way, Bruce's new life is a test subject. The abomination starts wreaking havoc on New York. So Bruce is like, I gotta jump out of this helicopter. And Betty's like, no, you'll die! And Thunderbolt is just sort of like, just don't kill the Hulk on me, I guess. They're not even sure if he's going to Hulk out because he just took the treatment. So he jumps out of the helicopter, which I think is the scene you were saying earlier, Kevo, that was one of the things that Zach Penn was like, nope, nope, got to keep it. Yep, one of the two. And he jumps out, he hulks, punch, 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 kick, kick, punch, throw, throw, punch, kick, punch. I think the one really cool thing is he does a Hulk thunderclap that puts out a fire. Yeah, I was going to bring up that one, but that's pretty much it. And then uh, the fight's over, and Hulk manages to get away. 
And in a movie where nothing goes right, somehow it seems to fall apart worse toward the end. The scene where Betty is just standing on the pier looking out over the New York Harbor with the Statue of Liberty in the background, and suddenly her phone just beeps in her pocket to let her know that the battery is dying, and oh look, there's a picture of Bruce, and that's the end of Betty for this film and so far for all of the MCU. Not only is that not how that technology would work, it's such an awkward moment. I almost would rather not have seen Betty again before the end of this film. Especially because it feels hollow. She doesn't show back up in a way that makes me go, oh, they're utilizing Betty here. She shows back up in a way that makes me go, did they did they remember Betty was in the, did they just, for, is this a different film? Bruce alone retrieving the necklace that they hawked to get money and sending it back to Betty is a better final moment for Betty than what they filmed with Liv Tyler, and that's a bizarre choice. Wow, we survived. We survived the gamma-irradiated nightmare that was the Incredible Hulk. It started better than I remembered turned into worse than I remembered, so I guess it averages about what I remember. Pretty much. And it was not incredible, but you know what? It gave us the seeds of the Marvel Universe in some ways, and gave us the Mark Ruffalo Hulk, so I really can't complain. But I do believe that brings us up to Iron Man 2. Yeah. Double the iron, double the man, as a matter of fact. it's uh, Actually, yeah. Yeah, it's got War Machine in it. I remember there's going to be War Machine, uh, more Pepper, Oh, Black Widow. I always forget this is Black Widow's introduction. Yeah. It kind of doesn't really feel like Black Widow. Uh, yet another reason that I never, ever like... Uh, what's his name that plays Justin Hammer? Sam... Uh... Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. Yeah, I just always think he's so smart. I just want to slap him. I get that. And I've I've had sort of a thing against him ever since he was the surprise villain in Charlie's Angels, which is a script that Zach Penn actually worked on, interestingly. Man, the, the crossed wires there... Oh, and that one also has um, it has a uh, whiplash too, and Gary Shandling as a bad government dude, and like who we get to see in other films outside of Iron Man before he passed away tragically, mm. and then Nick Fury's in. Like, there's actually a little too much going on in Iron Man to just talk, and that's also where we get the Howard Stark stuff. It's it's uh. That's got the palladium core, I think, with well, the poison. One of the exciting things, uh, one of the things that's going to be exciting to talk about with Iron Man 2 is Iron Man 2 is really the real start of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's the first film that was produced in any way after Disney's purchase of Marvel. It was the first time that they really started to understand that this was going to be some sort of ongoing franchise, even if they didn't know at the time that it was going to last 11 years and possibly beyond. They were really starting to sow the seeds, and it really shows the film comes together in a way that these two first ones have not so far. That said, I do believe I like Iron Man 1 a lot more than Iron Man 2. I think Iron Man 2 falls victim to some clunkiness that, in retrospect, I'm glad we do this bit at the end where we talk about the next one before we see it, because I think Iron Man 2 hinges on reminding us about things in Tony Stark's character that were erased quickly by his transformation and growth throughout the first film. So they're trying to tell us that these defining parts of his character are resurfacing, but the truth is we hadn't really seen them in the first film. Yeah, 
It's, it's, uh, you know, we're told that he's falling back on these bad habits, but part of the issue with that film is that we as the viewers now, after the fact, especially know that he was really only falling back on those behaviors as a mask for the fact that he was dying. And there's not really a huge connect between the behavior and the ultimate revelation when everything comes out in the end. All right, man. Well, we survived it. It's done. Yeah. I don't think we have to watch that movie ever again. So, Kevo, until we're starting to talk about Iron Man 2, where can everybody find you? Uh, The usual place. You can find me over on Twitter and IG at Kevo Really. And if you're looking for me, you can find me over on Instagram and Twitter at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. You can check out my music project at Facebook.com slash ActionDuo. Or you can check out our awesome inclusive superhero comic, Kid Riot, at KidRiotComics.com, where you can check out our current season, Riot Squad, and its sister title, Capes and Boots. Also, don't forget to check out the other amazing content here on the Cage Club Network, including... X's for Podcast, where Kevo and I, along with our boyfriend Jonah and our friend Kyle, take a look at the X-Men comic book franchise, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one, and make our way all the way to current. Also, check out Now and Again, which features me and my best buddy Chris, taking a look at the Now, that's what I call music volumes one at a time, from the beginning to now. That's the whole point of the title. All right, well, until next time, guys, we'll check you on the flip. Peace.